The Lifestylist, episode 109, featuring Saad De Simone. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Today's show is brought to you by Organifi. Now, you guys know I always talk about their green superfood powder. I take that literally every single morning, sometimes during the day. It's out of control, good, super powerful. However, I just got a hold of their new product called Organifi Gold, which is sort of like a golden latte. It's got turmeric, ginger, reishi mushroom, lemon balm, turkey tail mushroom, all these rad superfoods and herbs. It's, of course, totally organic. And what's dope about this particular product is you can make a hot elixir with it with a healthy fat, like a coconut oil, grass-fed butter, or ghee, or you can make a cold smoothie with some kind of nut milk or something. So here's my routine. I do the Organifi green powder in the morning or maybe midday if I need a little boost. Then at night when I want to chill out, I do the golden latte using the Organifi gold. It's a really good warm elixir. It really chills you out and it's gently detoxifying. So that's my favorite new thing. If you want to check it out and all of their products, I highly recommend them. Of course, you can go to Organifi.com with an I. And if you use the code LIFESTYLIST, you will save 20 percent in your order, which is a really fat discount. I'm pretty into these guys. I think that's very cool that they offer such a substantial discount. So go to Organifi.com, use the code LIFESTYLIST and save 20% and make sure you check out the new Organifi Gold. It is amazing. Today's show is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Now you guys know I'm always talking about their medicinal mushroom elixirs because I take them all the time. I'm super addicted to them. But now they've got a couple other products that I'm really into. They've got a decaf coffee for when I don't feel like freaking out on caffeine. And then they have a regular coffee, but not just coffee. Both of them are infused with medicinal mushrooms. So it's a mushroom coffee. They're fantastic. They've also got some matcha drinks like the matcha with lion's mane. And the thing that's cool about the Four Sigmatic drinks is they're totally organic. They're super powerful herbs and superfoods and mushrooms, but they're really easy to use. That's the issue I've had, like trying to be healthy and making myself some cool drinks is that it's kind of a pain in the ass and I have to open up all these different containers and it's a big project. Their products come in these little packets. You just pop them open. They're very portable. I take them on the plane. I take them on trips. I keep them in my bag, in my car. I kind of have them all over the house and I can just use them whenever I want. So Four Sigmatic, one of my favorite companies. If you want to check them out, I highly recommend that you do. To do that, you go to foursigmatic.com and like all of my sponsors, they offer a sweet discount to the listeners. If you use the code LUKESTORY, you will save 15% off your order, which is a pretty good deal. So go to foursigmatic.com, enter the code LUKESTORY and save 15%. Check it out. Good morning, afternoon, evening, Earthlings. It's Luke Story bringing you another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. Check it out. I've got some good news for you. First bit of good news is that this month, for the month of December, I'm doing not one, but two episodes per week. Yep, what? 
And this Friday will be number 110 featuring Arnie Grinstead, where we talk about the magical healing powers of lasers. It's some pretty crazy stuff. Okay, next thing I want to let you know is that I am so close to hitting my first 1 million download marker. My goal was to do that by New Year's Eve. As of this moment right now, I'm up to, I think it was 900,067, something like that. Um, I'm real close. So what you can do to help me achieve that goal is very simple. All you have to do is A, subscribe to the podcast so you get every episode downloaded to your device or computer, and more than anything, share it with a friend. Now it's really cool. You know, the the iTunes podcast app has kind of had some upgrades, and now you can actually scroll down and click on share and text it or email it to a friend. Super easy. So share this episode with a friend if you would be so kind. Next announcement is that... I just did something super cool. I started a Facebook group for you listeners. So now I'm building a community where you can come join me and the rest of the listeners of the show. I'm going to be posting, you know, Q&A videos. I'm going to do live videos where I, you know, post behind the scenes uh, recordings of the podcast, answer questions. You guys can post stuff that you find on there. So I'm really excited about that. All you have to do is go on Facebook and search Lifestylist podcast and you will find the group it's open to the public just join and we will hang out there i wanted to have one central hub where all of us could kind of chill because on social media and through emails and websites it gets a little fragmented okay so that's the announcement for this week on to the show this is not one you want to miss y'all this is featuring saudi simone I recorded this in New York City. Saw is just a beautiful human being. I love this dude. We did an event together out there. He was one of the moderators of a panel that I did at this event called Whitma Live, which was awesome. And I was just vibing with this dude. We had so much in common because he started out in the fashion industry, which you'll hear, and then just made this huge pivot and became a meditation teacher, spiritual teacher, transformational coach, and is just this super high vibe, really fun, rad guy. So he's been featured on Mind, Body, Green, Well and Good. He's worked with the the UN, Lululemon, American Express, Bloomingdale's, Saks Fifth Avenue, and tons of other influential brands. He's doing just really fantastic stuff. So we're going to find out, uh, like me, how he made that transition out of the fashion industry. He founded a magazine called Bullet that I actually used to shoot for when I was a stylist, which is really weird. And then he got out of that went and traveled through India and Nepal and has done just all this crazy spiritual seeking and came back and was like, ta-da, I'm a new guy and is helping tons of people and just really making an amazing contribution to the world. So I'm really happy to share this uh, conversation with you. So some of the things we cover are as follows. How childhood trauma plays out in dysfunctional adult patterns, his experience with the Kabbalah Center and how that helped shape his teaching, what it's like to chill with the Dalai Lama, Facing fear, guilt, and shame on meditation retreats. And the risks involved in taking spiritual trips to Nepal, India, and other third world countries because your microbiome can freak out on you and you can get really sick. The power of breathwork. How to use the third eye as a point of focus in meditation and why that matters. The gathering of meditative energy to sharpen the mind. How he learned to back up the woo-woo of spirituality with science. How his chronic pain went away once he started to serve others based on the fact that when you wish someone well, you boost your own happy neurochemicals. The struggle of the hierarchy of skin color growing up in Brazil. The importance of self-acceptance and acceptance of one's own sexual preference and how he learned how to do that. 
how he survived being picked on as a kid, how a lack of self-worth can manifest in overachieving, and how to fix that. Saw shares his excitement regarding the acceptance of mental health issues becoming less shameful. And finally, exactly how he made this massive transition from being a fashion professional to a full-time spiritual teacher and what it looks like from a business and financial perspective. So as you can see, this is a very meaningful episode and it gives me great pleasure to present to you Saw de Simone. Saadi Simone, welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast. Thank you. So we've it's been hanging out a little bit today. I'm like, God, how are we going to only record for an hour? I can tell we have a lot of synergy. We have a lot in common. And uh, thank you for having me at the Whitma Live event the other night. Uh, your panel was wonderful. I could tell you were a very high vibe person. And you seem to be very plugged into New York City and the consciousness scene here. So I want to talk to you today about your own journey and what you're up to in enlightening the world, living in an insane place like we are. Oof. So here we go. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tall order, my friend. So yes. Okay, so the first thing that I realized about you, which I didn't know just from seeing you online and interacting with you through email and stuff like that, is that you're from Brazil, which is like my favorite place on the freaking planet. So what was up? Where are you from in Brazil? How'd you end up moving here? Okay, um... Born and raised in Brazil, my parents moved to Florida when we were 16. There was a big uh, business change that they did, uh, to not to go into many details. Um, but Why, was it drug dealing? No. <laughs> <laughs> they were, it would have been better. They were working was. with some people in Colombia, see? And, uh, no, okay. no, my dad actually worked for the, um, the Secret Service looking out for these guys. Wow. Um, looking out for the drug dealers. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of things in that, in that way, too, that happened. So um, was he responsible for when like, the coke scene dried up in the mid-'80s? Because that pissed me off. you know it's so funny my dad never really talked about him himself doing anything right right uh, which is you know so you so you moved to florida and then how'd you end up moving to uh to new york city so lived in florida and that was where a lot of the a lot of the trauma that's been cooked into me really blossomed it was living in florida uh in tampa actually that totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. <laughs> Not the most high energy place in the country. No, it was... No offense to anyone living yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but, you know, it was really a traumatizing place to be in, especially coming... Like, I had gone to American schools my whole life, but never fully spoke English very clearly. So being a brown kid with a unibrow, wearing Nike tracksuit, because that for Brazil was cool. But yeah. when you come into America, where all these 16-year-olds are driving um, an Escalade and... Everyone's white and beautiful and they live in the... It's just everything was different for yeah. me personally, uh, personal life and then whatever was experienced out in the world. Um, so the moment that I could, I left and I left for LA. And when I moved to LA, I had a, a pink mohawk and, you know, it was just really starting to express myself creatively and, um, and then lived in LA for two years and then I was researching... Um, the misshapes, that party movement that was happening here in New York in downtown in Soho at the basement of Dunhill. And um, I was like, I want to be part of that. And I also want to know, I was, you know, want to be part of that movement of the Andy Warhol movement and work for Interview Magazine and go to FIT and do all those things. So it was literally in LA and there was four of us living in a studio apartment. 
one of them was a drug dealer actually and that the other three of us we were actually helping his business uh, you know with whatever as we customers could. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, customers support too. team Cus- yeah, support, customer service customer service exactly. <laughs> sales and acquisitions <laughs> <laughs> yes R&D <laughs> yes all of the things and it was just really fun because we were experiencing all these like homes and 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 Fabulous people and all the glitz and the glam of that world. Yeah. Um, Which lasts for about a month. Exactly. And, and then, then it's like, like, oh. Yeah. And then he went to, he got caught and I got in a huge fight with my best friend, two of them. And then one of them went back to Switzerland and the other one stayed in LA. And that's when I was like, I need to get, get the fuck out of here. This is way too crazy. I had become um, hooked into to cocaine and alcohol. I was like literally living that life seven nights out of the week. It was, that was, that was what I did. And I was 19 too, 19, 20. And then I just had a a, a moment that I was like, I'm just going to sit down and email these people. So I emailed interview magazine and I started to, I got an internship there. Um, Interviewed um, for FIT also got in there and Arriving in New York was all of a sudden the Dunhill, the misshapes was all happening and being part of that movement with, with that, it was just, I've never seen anything like that where there was all walks of life, people from all different backgrounds coming together to dance the night away. Um, yeah, so that's how I ended up being moving to New York when I was uh, almost 22. And then we share... A background which I wasn't fully aware of. I mean, it rung a bell that Anna had had told me about your history in, in the yeah. New York magazine scene and stuff like that. But you had founded a freaking magazine called Bullet, and then which is the weirdest thing is is that I did a few styling jobs back in the day for <laughs> Bullet too. <laughs> I was like, so you true. were probably one of the people that I was emailing, like, hey, I'd like to do a bigger story, and like, because I was always trying to pitch myself to like New York magazines, because in LA you only got to shoot celebrities, and that's not yeah. very respected in yeah. the fashion industry. Yeah. I mean, less so back in the day. I mean, I'm going back quite a few years. Um, now it's changed a little bit, so that's interesting. So, so then at 22 you move here, and by 23 you 23. started your own magazine. It was the day that Alexander McQueen died. Actually, I remember very clearly. I was on a cab on the way to Bryant Park to the tents and I get a call from my friend saying hey come meet Aaron and Nick they want to talk to you about this media project that they want to do and I was like okay cool at that point I had been styling I had only you know been working with uh, different bands and New York centric people no one that was like in the media eye at that point And then one thing led to another. Next thing you know, 23, there was me, Aaron, Nick, and and James. Andrew was also part of it, but the main main core group was was us when we, um, and then Bullet was born, Bullet Magazine. And then fast forward um, almost four years, 12 countries, 50,000 issues, spending a quarter of a million dollars every season. It was just like one thing after another. And we it was really I was really lucky to have worked with all the people that we wanted to because we had such strong financial support. And we have Vuitton and Chanel as advertisers in perpetuity since the first issue. So that gives us like credibility and support. Uh, and we didn't have to work how a lot of other magazines did per se. We weren't so driven by advertising because we had all this um 
investment to create. Uh, so that gave us access to work with a lot of people in a really creative way, which was essentially what we always wanted. It was really meant to be like, do you remember the face, the British magazine? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it was like the face, ID, and days. We wanted to have that combination in New York, which it wasn't really the downtown, uptown mix coming together. It was very much like you either wear a full Prada look or you wear a full uh, vintage look that crisscrossing that you know merger of uptown downtown it wasn't really a lot happening in its scene um and talking about it now it feels like it's so long ago my god because it was it was like november 22nd 2012 when i asked to leave because when i that's when i sort of had this burnout well that's what okay so that's good we're doing yeah. we're doing great here <laughs> so that's good background now the purpose of this conversation is to really dive into the consciousness and the transformational work that you do and your spiritual journey. And I like to know where people come from, you know, sort of, I guess you could call it their origin story. And I do find the correlation or the similarities between our paths, you know, drugs, kind of having fun when you're young, gets a little dark, then get into fashion, have some success there, find that unfulfilling for whatever reason, and then start to pursue, you know, what I think appears to be your true passion. So now you're breathwork teacher, meditation teacher, mindfulness, you're into like all this really heavy, beautiful spiritual stuff. And you're really kind of a thought leader in this field in New York now. I know that, you know, it's tough to think of yourself as that, but from the outside looking in, like you're very like connected in that scene and have traveled all over the world and studied with, you know, Deepak Chopra and the Dalai Lama and all of these fantastic people. What was the dark night of the soul for you, or a few of them? I've had, you know, 280 of them, but what were, you know, what were a couple, or not necessarily like an event, but motivating factors for you that led you into a life now where you're 100% devoted to your spiritual path and to helping to heal others on the path as well? You know, like most people don't just do that because everything's going well, is what I'm getting No, of course not. I realize that I, um, there was a lot of betrayal, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt and fear that had been cooked into me. I didn't really know where that was. I thought that I had built all that within myself uh, in this life. Um, and it was when I left the magazine and I, all my friends that I had hired to work at the magazine didn't really connect. I mean, it's a much longer story um, to not get into too many details about that. But it was, um, I realized that I was a leader in, the, in, the, in my own little magazine world that was inspiring people with fear, not with love. And I realized the weight that that was having on me continuing to abuse with drugs and alcohol and random sex and um, all these things that were really, um, it was a cycle and I had no idea how to get out of it. So when I left New York, I got rid of everything and I went to Florida. I got this little house on the beach in Madeira Beach. And that's when I started to have a little bit of space to see uh, what kind of life I had been living and what kind of imprints I've been creating on people and on myself. But the real heavy weight, the real awareness of, of all the shit that had been cooked into me, that um, baggage that I've been carrying for a while... It was when I did my first um, 10 day silent retreat in the Himalayas up north in, in India. And then I stumbled upon a talk from His Holiness Dalai Lama and then followed him around. And then there was during a 30 day silent retreat that that's when I really, everything shifted. It all changed. When I s- saw how the belief in our thought patterns to be the construct of a reality was the furthest away from the truth that it could ever be. Um, 
to the point that I believed that my whole family had died. And I was like crying hysterically. And I paid a monk at the retreat to let me use the phone. And my mom answered, she's like, we're good. We're so excited that you're doing this. Keep going. And to, So your family's been supportive of your mission? Yes. Yeah, they um, understand? They do. And there were several times that um, I hit that rock bottom. Um, but one of them was during this silent retreat that I saw so much of how I had been living life and how really everything that I had been doing wasn't really my own. You know, I had... I had been living out these prejudices that had been cooked in through my mom's uh, chemistry and my dad's and all their traumas had been stilled in me and I was just living that out. So finally I had this space and that was when I I decided to come back to America to, to really regroup in a comfortable space and that's when I reached this existential paralysis where I was like, uh, none of it makes sense. I don't know what to do. None of it can get me out. Were you expecting when you went to India that you'd come back and just kind of jump back into the fashion industry and just keep doing what you're doing in a more no, awake way? Or no. had you already went like, you know what? I'm done. No. I'm moving yes. to Florida. Yeah. Fucking I, out. That was, that was done. I just had no idea what I was going to do. You know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I yeah. knew that I was never going to go back into fashion. Right. You know, once you visit India and once you study, once you get close to these people, uh, there's seeds that get planted, right? In, yeah. Into our subconscious yeah. mind, into our, our, our mind stream. That the it, Shakti, man. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it, it yeah. just something from, you know, uh, what I've understood, it's it, we, we, get, we remember our inherent nature of mm-hmm. compassion and service and, and kindness and forgiveness and creativity. And when we are just constantly putting out and hoping for feedback in that way with the fashion it was so image driven. Um, I never, I never really saw myself coming back to that space. I mean, to think up to go back to this, I remember studying Kabbalah, and I can't even tell if I was going to Kabbalah uh, when I was still going to fashion. I was still working in fashion. If it was because Madonna would be there every Tuesday, it was because I really was wanted to like ex- ex- explore <laughs> myself, you yeah. know. Um, well, that's one of the goals I have with this podcast, actually, is to record celebrities that are into health and wellness and consciousness and stuff because it has such a big impact. So, yeah. you know, maybe someone does go to Kabbalah because they might run into Madonna and they're like starstruck or, or a star effer in a, on a spiritual path. But still, like you said, it gets in. Like, you have to have a pretty hard shell to be around a potent message like Kabbalah or like the Dalai Lama or Deepak or Pema Chodron, any of these really profoundly spiritual people. It's hard to be around that and not get positively infected, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I want to go back too to the, the silent retreat because this is something I was talking to Diego about, okay. Diego yes. Perez, who's going to uh-huh. be on the show. And he's really into the Vipassana tradition, mm-hmm. uh, silent retreats. Mm-hmm. And they're 10 days, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, have you ever done one? I go, no. But once I did a, a silent retreat in India for 21 days. And I think when, when you think about going to do a meditation retreat, uh, 30 days is like astonishing. But I think most people think of that like, oh, cool. You go meditate and you're all happy and you just <laughs> live in bliss and compassion. I'm like, what happened for me when I did the Oof. silent retreat? Dude, I became... I, the, the deepest, darkest hatred and animosity came up in my mind. I'd be sitting in the, or standing in the food line and there'd be, it was especially toward women. Mine was, which I, you know, was stuff I had to work through apparently. And I'd just be looking at like these older women in their spiritual like orange robes and shit. And I'd be sitting there just, you, I mean, I don't want to say it on the show, but just my mind would start producing these hateful thoughts and self-talking about the people there but luckily, I had the wherewithal to witness the thoughts at that point because I'd already been meditating for 10 years and stuff. So I was just like, oh my God. And I felt so guilty 
because these shadows were just like popping up nonstop. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of, I guess they were being cleansed or I was being made aware that there was more work to do. And perhaps I had spiritually bypassed some stuff and tried to be like Mr. Meditation Bliss guy before I had really exercised those those very mm-hmm. dark demons. Did you find when you did the 30 days that you were like, oh my God, like I'm an evil motherfucker. That's, <laughs> that was, that was really why. Did I, you? Okay. That was literally why. So it wasn't I, I just like this, unicorns like, and rainbows? depression. Okay. That was, it okay. was through that. It was <laughs> That's really so great. that at that point um, that I, I was like, holy fuck, I'm an asshole. <laughs> totally. I have been such a fucking cunt to everyone. Were you surprised that you were, I mean, were you going there with the expectation that you were going to find peace and feel really Look, Good here's the thing. The first week and a half, I was like, this is so funny you're bringing this up. Thank you for this, by the way. It's great self-reflection. For the first two weeks, we're like, okay, so meditate on the people that you've caused pain and meditate on the people. Tong Lang, right? The practice of breathing in their suffering and, and relieving them of their suffering through the, uh, through the mind's eye and how that changed the neural pathways to I me. Mean, there's science that backs all that. Uh, and it's uh, a Buddhist practice. Exactly. Okay. Uh, I studied with the Mahayana tradition. And... I really started to see that all that stuff, I have been such a fucking cunt my whole life. And I entered into this loop of guilt, okay, shame, okay. fear. And that's when I started to, to acquire these tools, this vocabulary, because I was carrying around all this shame and this guilt and this fear with me after they had waken up. Also, oh, to go back to the store. So yeah. that, two weeks in, we're doing all this meditation, purification. And I had this rare opportunity to talk to one of the masters there on the day of my birthday. And... I say rare because all these people who've been doing this work for so much longer wrote this letter and I wrote the letter like, yo, I'm curious, like, what's up? Let's yeah, me, yeah. You know, kind of yeah, like yeah. that New York thing. <laughs> and people that have been there for, in the ashram for like 20 years never get to talk to them. <laughs> exactly. All of a sudden, Were my name's jealous? on the board and they, all, everything. The relationship yeah. with so many people changed yeah. because people are like, Anyways, there's not to go into too, too many details yeah, yeah. about this, but it's very interesting that, that I can that already tell next time I'm here, we're going to have to do a, a part two because there's, we haven't even gotten into your current life and we're already like 30 minutes in. So. Okay, so I'm just going to say this. It's Thank you for bringing this up. So two weeks into the retreat, I was like, oh no, I'm sorry guys, but like, you know, I'm going to go hike Everest Base Camp after this and I'm going to go to Bali and I'm going to go do this and that. You guys have all have been so shit in your life. You've done, you've caused too much suffering to people. You really have work to do and everyone's crying and all these things are happening. Sad and done, honey. Literally, that same evening, we did the Vajrasafa purification practice, which is an hour of chanting these hymns that, you know, cultivate our inherent qualities and all the, to use your vocabulary, all the shadow, my vocabulary, all the suffering sh- comes up. And that's when I really was like, <gasps> I, my vision actually was peripheral vision, situational awareness, all of it, I lost connection to all of it and it w- went into my room lay down and I actually my body turned into this fever mold because it, it's it become it was the shock of, of mental inflammation um, lingered into physical inflammation so quickly that I had never experienced it like that so for the next two weeks I was having this hovering of these clouds of shame guilt fear shame guilt fear for so long so left there didn't go on my hike flew straight to Bodh Gaya to sit on the tree where Buddha set to become enlightened to wow, meet my damn. sister and continue to dive deeper and deeper and deeper. Your sister Moon? Moon. Who's exactly. going to be on my show in a yes, couple of weeks. Yes, cool. she's 
oh, this is great because she's high vision. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I just put it together because the last name is not common. I said, they've got, and they're both in the same circle, but yes. different cities, like, got to be related. Yeah. Um, so I came in to see her, and and then the, 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 the cloud was still there, but then the cloud really became my life after I decided to come back to America. Because I feel like the discomfort that sometimes you put in the austerity of living in ashrams and monasteries uh, wasn't allowing me my body. Because I, I get sick very often when I'm in India, in Nepal, in any Asian countries. Um, just the microbiome of my gut doesn't seem to connect with that. Although I know that my heart is <laughs> Indian and, and Eastern. Um, but anyways, when I came back here, I was like immersed in that, that cloud. I was living with the, that cloud. And I, that's when I started to talk about it. And that was when Instagram started to be a platform for me to, to deepen my practice. And it was at the very moment that I chose to not go into Western medical approach to really dive into the practice and chant and pray and meditate and do the breath work and eat clean and exercise and stop watching Game of Thrones and stop doing all the things that I had been doing up until that point, you know, uh, and watching porn and doing all the things that, that was normal to me. That I was still my spiritual path, but I, was, I wasn't in it completely, you know? So it was at that point that I was like, okay, I'm either going to commit suicide in five minutes because I was in the most beautiful home and running and all the beautiful things everywhere was just, and nothing was getting me out of that cloud. The cloud was still right here. And that lens, that cortisol boost that I was getting every morning and every night was lingering on. And you read the research, how it lasts in your body for a whole 24 hours and how that age is in, anyways, that whole thing was, I was in it for literally almost a year. And then I continued to meditate, do the work even deeper, deeper, and deeper. And what style of meditation were you doing? Breath work. Do you do now? I mean, uh, breath awareness. Oh, okay. So, shamatha. Okay. Um, and that's what I recommend to everybody is just gathering of the energy, gathering of the thoughts, just having a single point out of concentration. It's just what we need to sharpen the mind, right? And by returning to the object of focus, by resting the attention at the home base, if it is the breath, if it is a mantra, if it is a sound, if it is a, a, a point in your third eye, whatever it is for you, it's just the gathering of energy is important to sharpen the mind. I think of the the um, the breath awareness or just present moment awareness or the meditation I do is mantra-based Vedic mm -hmm. meditation. I always describe it to people as like, you're almost creating a decoy for the mind, you know, by, by putting the focus on something else. Like when I'm just almost effortlessly going back to my mantra and meditation, it's almost like throwing a ball for a dog that's trying to like eat your hamburger. You know, it's like the mind will just run off and chase the breath because mm -hmm. it gives it something to do. It's mm -hmm. sort of like gives mm -hmm. it something to chew on mm -hmm. in a sense. Is mm -hmm. that your experience too, where it allows you to kind of drop down into this transcendent place because you have a point of focus that sort of keeps your mind occupied? Like giving a baby a toy to play with so it doesn't sit there and tug on your pant? Or would you have a different interpretation of, of how the, the breath-focused meditation works? I think it's just, for me, it's, it, it helps me dissipate the emotional charge of a lot of my thoughts. Okay. How my thought patterns are so erratic. So is that like a physiological sort of thing because you're, you're doing the actual breathing too? I think it goes hand in hand, right? Okay, yeah. Physiologically lower inflammation and, right, right. And, and psychologically sharpness. Because you're also into 
I think some of the science, what I've gathered from talking to you is like, you like to be able to back up the woo-woo with science, which I That's think is smart. That's completely how I've been, how I've been thought. I okay, because if you, to try point. to get someone to buy in that's a little more, you know, analytical, like a linear thinking person, they find a lot of spiritual shit to be oh, yeah. fake because yeah. it's like, well, what's that going to do? Yeah, Prove exactly. it. Yeah. So if you go, well, look at, we have this 100 studies on your neurotransmitters and da 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 da. Exactly. It's like, I mean, that's really how it all started for me. Right. It was when I saw His Holiness Dalai Lama, uh, this, this is the third time in New Delhi uh, at a conference with a group of uh, neuroscientists from, from Harvard and different schools, and, and they were going back and forth for three days. And I happened to have gone to the conference with Nikki Vreeland. Nikki Vreeland is the the grandson of Diana Vreeland, oh, no way. which is so crazy. That wow. was like this huge fashion powerhouse, the person right. who changed American Vogue, yeah, yeah. you know, who who pretty much changed the face of fashion. In Arguably, way. like maybe the the world's first fashion editor and world's first real stylist Completely. before there was such thing exactly. as a stylist. So yeah. imagine being with her grandson, who's a high vision monk, sharp lizard focus. Uh, point of awareness and he is there and wow, i had met him randomly at the temple in the himalayas and then <laughs> wow. ended up you know he's like oh come to this thing and i yeah. i show up to the to the thing there's like oh it's only for the students at the university and i was like uh-uh honey I, i'm not taking a no for this and was so, that inspiring to you to find someone that was from a prior sort of social scene or a professional world that you respected that did it validate your path because you're like oh someone cool is doing this i'm on the right path or did that have any impact what validated the path for me was how good i was feeling oh, okay that was really what it was i mean yes it was great to have him as like a powerhouse but i had never felt i had never felt i had chronic pain in my chest i had chronic wow. pain in my back yeah. You know, and then you, you look think at the all chest the re- was a was a broken heart. I mean, just not from a romantic broken heart, but I just mean from. I always have have felt like this. My childhood like broke me. It, like broke my heart. Like I just completely inherently have a broken heart. Yes, which is my greatest gift, though. Too exactly that gives us the tools of a cabler to yeah. speak from that depth. You know, and and also, would you say a, a certain level of empathy? For other suffering, if you've suffered, right? Yes, I would you know? go a step further and say compassion, altruistic right, okay. compassion. You okay. know, because it, it, that just when things started to to change for me, I was like, wow. And then with the Mahayana tradition is very much about dedication of merit, dedication of intention, speech, and actually for the benefit of all, and how to really enter into that space of the Bodhisattva vow. You know, I reach enlightenment for the sake of all beings and. Taking not just, that vow. Not just for yourself. <laughs> no, it's not like, I'm not looking for enlightenment for myself. No, it's like, how could I reach the state of, of awareness, of openness, of connection, so I can be of benefit to all beings? That's funny, because I think on a certain level for me, I'm like, I just don't want to hurt anymore. Like I'm like, God, help me find whatever I can do to just feel good. But then, of course, it does. Once you actually own that and embody that, then it's sort of a natural thing to have the outpouring face the world but I actually never in the beginning set that intention you know from like the buddhist perspective i was just like oh my god help me i'll do anything it was like out of that desperation so yeah. you had so you had this pain in your chest mm-hmm. uh and that, then that, in your back you were saying mm-hmm. and then that started to become it, it went away when that. i went it went away when i started to to have the discipline practice when i started to serve you know when you look at the research the the 
behind service and like the helper's high. And it's the same neurochemicals that get boosted when you enter the flow. Um, so when we are uh, blessing somebody or wishing someone well, we're actually boosting these neurochemicals within us. It's just that it, science and spirituality are in such a beautiful place right now that we actually have the potential to really see things from that, from both lenses. And I mean, in, for me, it was a, a big thing to have the ability to see that like, wow, my suicidal tendencies and this fear and this guilt and the shame that arose was because my grandmother committed suicide and no one ever talked about it. And it was because she had a son who was brown skin. Everyone in my family is, is lighter skin, but I'm the brown one. How she was the brown one. She had a son who was brown skin too. And then my f grandfather told her that she needed to give him away because after they remarried from her first marriage. Damn. So that was a big thing. And what they, is up with that in the world? I where, know. Like, so it's it's up. So, it's really strange though, because I've sorry, dude. I interrupt okay. a lot just because I've my, this is the way my brain works. Yes, Listeners please. are used to it. You seem like you can roll with the punches, but I've always found this to be strange. Is that like if you say in some Asian cultures, the more pale you are, the more. Uh, benefit you have socially because it shows everyone that you're not out in the fields picking rice and shit that you're you know of the royal class yeah, right the yeah, ruling class yeah. but then in western culture if you're wealthy it's good to have, be really tan like the george hamilton sort of tan because then that shows people you have a lot of leisure time to go fuck around oh in the mediterranean God, or whatever, yes, right it's so but then in but then in <laughs> if you're too dark, though, then the elite, like as an African-American person, that's really dark, like Wesley Snipes, dark, dark, then that's not good to the elite white people that are too unintelligent to understand how lame that is. But it's just a strange cultural phenomenon at all. I've always thought this is weird, even when I was three years old or however, when I could first comprehend that some people didn't like other people because of like the wrapping that is around their meat suit is just so weird to me and that different cultures value different shades of skin, but almost universally, the darker you are, the worse it is, the worse you're treated, which is just so fucking weird. And I wonder what the origins, like maybe we're interbred with some alien species and like they were white and they like put in our consciousness that the lighter you are, the better. I don't know, it's weird. But I want to ask, in Brazil, is there that hierarchy of skin tone where like if your family were lighter skinned, did they have an easier time being accepted socially than you being darker? Is there discrimination against black people or darker people? I think it's everywhere, huh? It is? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't... Because in Brazil, I, dude, yeah. one thing I like about it is like everyone's... I mean, there are very dark skinned people there that look like of African origin, but everyone else looks very mixed. Like you yeah. can't really tell yeah. a Brazilian but person. But I'm from Paraná, which is like the widest. Oh, know? okay. It's like, it's very Like light. Port Alegre or something? Like, is it down south there where there's south. more Europeans? Yes, exactly. Okay. Like, I think it's the second um, biggest German uh, oh, okay. colony, something like that. Um, okay. It's very, very light skin in that part. Ah, so um, you, so you experienced discrimination as a kid, even in Brazil? It wasn't, uh, or was it, it in your was, mind? Um, I think there was a lot of uh, self-judgment, but not for the skin color, but for my sexual choices. Uh, okay. You know, that's when a lot of trauma started to be cooked in because, um, you know, in a big project that I'm working on now that we're building with, uh, it's me, a neuroscientist from Columbia University, my friend that works for the United Nations Innovations Department, and we're building this in partnership with Parsons is to educate parents how to cultivate um, uh, compassion and creativity. 
because research shows that we're all born creative. We're all born open. It's just, you know, we start to have all this societal family prejudice cooked into us. And then we start to lose potential to see ourselves as one, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think for me was a, a big thing was the fact that my parents didn't have the vocabulary to say, hey, do you like boys? That's okay. Whatever you like, that's okay. We're going to cultivate that. Was it like that. your grandma's suicide where it's something that they just pretended like wasn't existing or was it was it addressed or... They pretend it never existed. Okay, but yeah. then there would be a comment like, oh, where's your girlfriend? Or what is this? And then, so I started to date women for for that. And and, and it was just um, very interesting to, to <laughs> have that. To Must've... have that, uh, you know. And I get and, a you, lot of you feedback into it? from women, Were you ever actually. into it? I was, but not really, yeah, you know. Yeah. No, not really. I think um, it's, no. What's it like in, in Brazil? I get the... I just am keep going to bring it back to Brazil because it's such a fascinating culture to me. One thing I noticed there, and maybe it's just because I've spent the most time in Rio, and Rio is a beach city, so everyone's like half naked and there's this yes. sexual tension yes. in the air. Yes. One thing I found interesting about Brazilian culture, at least there, and, and to some degree in Sao Paulo, is that sexuality is very open and it's not like shamed. Like prostitution in Rio is normal. Yeah. Like prostitutes don't like hide in the corner in an alley. They're like on the beach. They'll come up to you like, hey, what's up? Got 50 bucks? Let's go. You know? And you're like, dude, aren't the cops going to come? And then there's like a family right next to you and they don't even blink that there's like hookers trolling the beach. And yeah. People like, I'd see like teenagers like making the fuck out in an acai shop or something where even I was like a little uncomfortable. They're like, fully getting into it and there's like old people around and <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's in like brazil is like we fuck and then we date yeah yeah it's Instead very of here it's like you date and then you fuck so from at least from a heterosexual standpoint i was like wow everyone's really free here do you think there that you found acceptance and that culturally your sexual preference was a bit easier to kind of be open with or is it the same shit there like all the bullies pick on you in school and call i was you only until like 16 you know okay well that's enough time to get picked on i was getting my ass kicked just for having a weird haircut and I, fucking I listening to black sabbath on. you know no, like, i was definitely getting picked on but i was really able to turn that bullying so i became the bully oh uh, okay you know so uh, i turned that and i would i would bring someone else's suffering up I would bring someone else's, uh, um, you know, any other thing that I could, you know, pinpoint on someone else. Um, I would uh, bring right, the focus right. onto them. So <laughs> we would laugh at them and not at me. Right. But it would happen when I would like go play tennis and soccer and judo and any of these like very alpha sports that it would require a kind of personality and, 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 and physical skill that I was just like, this is so stupid. But no, I think it's... <laughs> when it comes to sports, dude, I'm very gay. Because I was, I was fucking... I hated like oh all things God. that were yes. like... I mean, I like soccer for five minutes, but dude, I could not... And I got picked on a lot too, just because I was skinny and I always had long hair and dressed weird and I sucked at sports or I just wouldn't play and I was very much an outcast. So I think I have a certain compassion for people that are different because I always felt different. I mean, I'm yes. sure other people had it more rough than I did, you know, but um, I never fit in and was picked on a lot. And, and I relate to that too, because I wasn't like big and strong enough to like go kick people's ass or like beat up the bullies, but I could fuck with their mind. I, oh no, I did. I had a very, you did? I, oh, yeah. I wasn't like I was physically. very aggressive. I was I had physically wimpy. So you me. would kick ass? Oof. I would <laughs> gather people to beat other people. Really? Yeah. 
So, you're so like I the had a lot of clearing to do, honey. I used like I, I used like <laughs> psychological warfare. Like I would look for a kid's insecurity, like the bully that wanted to fucking meet me after school and beat me up, and I'd like find the thing they were insecure about, and I would play with their mind. And I was more passive aggressive than overtly aggressive. So anyway, uh, I'm glad I, we got over that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said something earlier in, that I thought was interesting too, in reference to vocabulary and yes. what I would I refer to as like my dark side or shadow. You just said that's the suffering part of you, and I really like that. I've never yeah. actually heard it framed that way, and uh-huh. that really that is what it is when any human being is inflicting pain on another. It really is their like um, outwardly express their own pain. I had a teacher once that um, own suffering though, because pain is inevitable. Right, suffering. suffering, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because pain is something that is, that will happen. You're goddamn right. Inevitably, it will happen day in, day out, especially depending on what kind of life or background you have. Yeah. But the relationship to the pain is the suffering, right? Yeah, So yeah, that's yeah. the part that we can actually so, have space So I had a change the vocabulary. I had a spiritual teacher once that uh, put it like this. He said, Luke, because, you know, I'd get in relationships with people that ended up to be bad people. And he'd say, Luke, hurt people, hurt people. I just, it's just the thing that stuck in me. You know, it's like when we're suffering, one of the ways that we alleviate that suffering is by inflicting it on mm-hmm. others, at least at a certain level of consciousness. Yes, definitely. But the thing that you're saying reminds me of that, one of my favorite sayings is Shakespeare, that there is no good or bad, only thinking makes it so. So there it is. That's exactly the same thing. So what yeah. you're saying is that we're going to experience physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, but how we frame that is going to measure the degree of suffering which we experience as a result. Mm-hmm. Is that where you're? Pema Pema talks about riff on that a bit because this is to me this is the the golden key to the universe. Like this is where freedom lies. Is is well, understanding? So, yeah, that. Pema talks about pain lasting on a physiological level for about ninety seconds. Everything that happens after that is the story, the narrative that we create. So from the narrative on a psychological level, could be one thing. Also, given the chemical imbalances that we have and all of our genetic predispositions that we have, it can linger on through days and nights, sometimes years. And then that could manifest as, as a anatomical pain. And then you realize that that isn't uh, anatomical pain anymore. It's a physiological manifestation, you know? Um, so what I found that through these practices, these ancient, um, very wise practices, helps us change the, uh, uh, dissipate the emotional charge that that storyline has. It's not that the pain won't happen. It's not that the suffering won't happen. It's just our relationship to pleasure and pain or pain will change. We were able to, it's not that an old memory, a bad memory will change. I mean, although there are things, uh, there, uh, there is scientific research being done about how to erase those parts. Oh, of, like reprogramming your subconscious? Actually on a physiological level, oh, you know, wow. like really going into the hippocampus, like really entering to the air of the brain and then erasing it um, with laser, for instance. Oh, uh, which shit. is Give which me I that. Think, no, I think a lot of us are going to really get into that later, but... Please uh, delete my sexual abuse. <laughs> you know what it, I mean? Like, exactly. Same. And, and, oh, and same and so many times. I mean... Or even so, just getting... I, it, when I was a kid, dude, I used to get chased by dogs and like... I still sometimes have that reaction when a dog walks by and barks or something like, <gasps> like just like my nervous system just fucking yeah. freezes. You know? And the and lack I'm of like, self-worth that we have in the West, that we are the self-loathing, that, that we are not worthy of, of being okay, that we're not worthy of, of living, loving and laughing, that we are worthy of pain and suffering. Like that being cooked into our 
overarching theme of how we connect to ourselves in the world that is for me across the board from working you know in, the, in, in some really high vision corporate spaces to just one-on-one clients um it, we all experience such a, a disconnect with ourselves and we believe our thoughts so much and that emotional charge holds us down, you know? So to just, you know, go back into that, I think to these practices, the, the, what happens is not that the memories will disappear, is that at once we'll be able to close the book and actually put it on the shelf. And we actually have the space between where we are, your inherent nature, and the bookshelf. Um, so that space dissipates the emotional charge. So therefore, that lens of fear, of shame and guilt that you've had, a little bit of that veil gets lifted. And then the more we exercise those inherent qualities of compassion, kindness, courage, patience, um, altruism, we can actually um, change all of our brain and then rewrite that physiological story. And then you look at the research from Marion Diamond in 1969 at UC Berkeley and intentional behavior changes. She was pretty much one of the pioneers into the neuroplasticity field. And then you look at Sarah Lazar from Harvard in 2011 uh, about we're, mindfulness. We're going to have some good show notes here. Uh, <laughs> so I have not heard of these people. I'm like, okay, cool. We're going to, um, yeah, this is great. It's, it, there, there's a, there's, I mean, what was this? I'm sorry. What was the study about mindfulness? The last one, Sarah. Sarah Lazar. Okay, Sarah uh, Lazar. So she's one of the, the, also the, of course you have John Kabat-Zinn who's done it in a more clinical way, but she's the one that really brought forth, like Washington Post did a big story. And then um, a lot of those people started to to come from, the, and Richie Davidson, um, everyone knows about him, Matthew Ricard. I don't um, know any of these people, but um, I'm getting school. This okay. is great. So Richard. Uh, Along these lines, I know Bruce Lipton, uh, The Biology of Belief. Yeah, but he, he's is great. That, he's is, great. Is that on a different he's thing? On a, okay. Yeah, because I'm I'm mainly focused on the simple uh, practice of having an object of focus to the breath. Oh, okay. And then okay. whenever you notice that you've been caught up in a negative thinking, determining that there's a negative thought, that alone changes the neural pathways. That alone uh, okay. builds a new neural pathway. It's it's focused on on neuroscientists who have a Buddhist background. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That is that's the niche you're that's, talking. Yeah, okay, exactly. And how do you find how do you find these people? Like if you if you've read books or watched TED talks or whatever, like if someone other than the ones you've mentioned, if some wants to find like the studies and the science the neuroscience on spirituality and these practices that we're going into like where do you find this stuff does someone share it with you and then you find a teacher of theirs and does it i mean honestly if you look at his holiness dalai lama's uh why he's become a world leader it's because from the gecko he's like Bring a group of neuroscientists let me show you how these practices really work uh, okay and then when you have that you know uh cultural phenomenon happening from a religious standpoint and then he's sitting with the with uh uh neuroscientists from harvard from stanford uc berkeley madison wisconsin school like massive powerful uh, leading schools coming together to meet this dude and everything he's saying there is scientific information behind it you know there's no way for you to not and then uh, for you not to, um, whoever background you're in, you know, I think Bruce Lipton is an amazing guy. I think some of those topics can be kind of like highbrow. And I think what we do um, in that niche of Buddhism and, and, and mindfulness, we simplify everything. And 
what I do, I have a Google alert for all these topics. Ah, uh, okay. From okay, there, there you go, there you go. Health. I'm like, there has uh, to all be these something. Teachers, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have an, uh, That's smart. So every Friday, I get an average of like 25 to 30 emails. And then you just, you know, the, the brain works with pattern recognition. So the moment that I see a pattern, recognizing another pattern, there's a dopamine spike there. And then that way I can like already live in that space and things start to integrate. And then at that point, I just start to download all that information and, Cause um, I, that's funny because I only get my dopamine from Instagram. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you, but I do. And now for a brief yet crucial announcement. As I mentioned in the intro, I just started a brand new Facebook group for you, the listeners. Yo, I've got a community going over there. I think I launched it yesterday, actually. And if you just go on Facebook and search the Lifestylist Podcast, you will find it. It's an open group. You don't have to get approved. It's not a secret society, you know, the Freemason stuff or anything like that. You just get right in by adding yourself. And what will happen is all sorts of magic, okay? You'll be able to interact with other listeners to the show. You will be able to ask questions of them and of myself. I will do my best to answer them. I'm going to be posting Facebook Live videos, just doing Q&As, doing Hangouts with you guys. And also, of course, I'll be doing uh, Facebook Live broadcasts in there of behind the scenes podcast recordings with my guests, which people really like. They get to see like, you know, the raw dog, real deal of what it's like for me to sit there and interview people. So get over to Facebook, search the Lifestylist Podcast, join the group, and let's make something cool out of it. All right. Thanks so much. And now back to the interview. What, how do you tap into the flow? Well, I do my Vedic meditation. I do lately, man. I've I've always done different breath work that I've just you know I learned old school, just hatha yoga, pranayama, and stuff like that. But recently, more into the more like shamanistic breathing and holotropic breathing, Wim Hof breathing, like more aggressive, hardcore, longer periods of deep breath work. I did that this morning. I spent like 15 minutes just going nuts because I was up really late recording a three-hour podcast with Matt Maruka, who's sitting here still. He became my uh, adjunct assistant. So anytime that I'm feeling like spaced out and just like overwhelmed and need to get grounded, I do my breath work. I also have this thing that we had you on. The audience can't see it, but it's called the amp coil. And, I do uh, feel a little like... Mm-hmm. Dude, I'm telling you, that thing <laughs> is... not The people watching on Insta and Facebook, this is the coil from the amp coil. And there's this whole amplifier down here. Actually, I can turn, turn it off so it doesn't make noise. Um, but I have a lot of um, actually like energy devices and healing devices that I use too. You know, I use, mm-hmm. um, I have a red laser panel called a Juve that's in my office slash kind of biohacking spiritual studio. Um, that releases serotonin, dopamine, increases mm-hmm. your testosterone, mm-hmm. fuels your mitochondria, which gives mm-hmm. you energy to actually have positive thoughts. If mm-hmm. you ever notice when you get run down, mm-hmm. it's so much easier to have the propensity toward negativity mm-hmm. when you're fatigued. So if my mitochondria is like firing on all cylinders, then I like can actually transmute a negative thought into a positive one. I do infrared saunas, oh, read spiritual, yeah. read spiritual literature, anything and everything I can do. I mean, we would we'd have to have you'd have to interview me for three hours to even touch the surface. I actually am very curious about that. Can we change the script at some point <laughs> and we interview you about it? <laughs> oh, totally. We'll 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 do it at some point. But um, but uh, you know, a lot of the same stuff. But yeah, my mind is not oriented to where. I'll dive too deep into like the research. I kind of like, 
I see, like you said, a correlation between a couple different practices, shamanic breathing, which I called something else shortly before, uh, shamanic breath work, and you go, oh, this is with the holotropic breath work, and those guys discovered that because LSD became illegal, and they wanted to find a way, okay, that's connected, so that shit works. They're doing it in Peru on <laughs> ayahuasca journeys, there's breath work there, you know, so it's like, yeah. and then Wim Hof, and you can do that breath work, and then you can sit in ice bath for 20 minutes, no problem. So I see how the different things are connected, but it yeah. happens really fast and it's not linear in any way. It's just like this intuitive validation when one thing touches another thing or like the principle that I described, the Shakespeare quote, there's no such thing as good or bad, only thinking, thinking makes it so. So the minute mm -hmm. you say something that is the equivalent energetic match to that, I go, oh, that's true. You know, just like when you hear truth cool. and I sort of just assimilate truths over time, whether they be a physical practice or spiritual or mental and put it together. But I've never been good at like being able to correlate who said what, when, and the studies and stuff like I'm that. Not I'm not either like, though. There's just a really, really there's just a group of, of people who have really made mindfulness what the buzzword that it is. Right. You know, right. that you can trace back to right. who they are. You know what I find know? is interesting is that uh the New York spiritual scene that I'm sort of starting to get in tune with and meeting great people like you. And I, I interviewed um, Ellie from Mindful and I'm interviewing uh, Elena Brower this week and just mm -hmm. tons of fantastic, very high vibe people that are that live in New York. I'm working on Sharon Salzberg. I've got some big dream. Marianne Williamson is one of my goals, but yes. she moved to New York recently. She, you could just see her whenever you want in LA. And now we're like, damn, we miss her, you know? But I find out here that a lot of the teachings and a lot of stuff people gravitate toward tends to be kind of in the Buddhist tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the East Coasters seem to kind of go in that direction a little bit. And then California, we're all over the place, but <laughs> there's all kinds of weird stuff going on. But do you, do you find that a lot of the stuff here that really becomes popular is sort of centered in, in Buddhist tradition? Yes. So it's not just me, my perception of that? No, I mean, there. Oh, look, it don't seems get me prevalent. wrong. Um, I think there's there's that because the Buddhists could also, they simplify, but it's also very intellectual. There's lists for everything. You right, know, and highly right. intellig intelligent people love to have lists. And New York is a place where like the, you know, the dumbest person is reading five books a year. And the right. borderline smart is reading 10 books a year. And then someone who's, uh, who's you know, really killing it is reading a book a month, you know? Right. Um, or, you know, people like my brother who read a book every week. And there's, you know, yeah. they're just, it, it's just different yeah and i find it in california it's a lot easier for you to experience a little bit of this <laughs> yeah, and experience yeah, a little yeah. bit of that and this and I that's think why here, kundalini yoga is so big in la man yeah you know? i mean it has grounding kriyas I mean, too but LA i mean is epic the fact that we have everyone there relatively much more um much you know less have so much less suffering than new york the, the east coast of of america um but i think the the buddhist a lot of these teachers live upstate, you know? Yeah. You have the one of the most leading voices in the mindfulness movement, Sharon Salzberg, living right here at Union Square. You know what I mean? Um, you have all you, you have uh, Joe Rizzo and and Miles Nied and um, Robert Thurman and and Emily Wolf and the people from the guys from Nalanda University, uh, Nalanda Institute, right here at Tibet House. You know, I study with them every Thursday for three hours. Like it's uh, for some reason, they chose to be in the craziest city in the world. This is the reason why I actually uh, relocated back to New York is to be closer to them. 
Wow. You know, because that yeah. was an opportunity to do the same kind of a, a close study of contemplative psychotherapy, where it's the most cohesive group of neuroscientists and Buddhist teachers coming together to do it in San Francisco. So I could live in LA and go out to San Francisco once a month and study with them there. But I was like, why would I not be seeing these people face to face every Thursday for three hours if I can? You know, that's so interesting to me that people that are you know, on the consciousness path to such a degree of commitment would choose to live in a city that's so much the antithesis of, like, health in every way. I mean, this is, like, such an unnatural... If you just look at... I mean, we have such a lovely view here today. Yeah. I wish you guys listening on the podcast could see where we just got lucky and uh, have a great view. But it's, it's like gorgeous. everything you see is goes against our biology, you know, the EMFs, the cell towers. The, I mean, it's There's just not like one natural shape. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everything's like right angles. It's just the whole thing. So it's so interesting. But it, when, when you're saying that, how there's like this. Um, but if you can make it mindful here, you can make it anywhere. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I, I just had sort of this revelation. It's like, okay, so all these teachers, they could go all live upstate and stay at Omega Institute or some shit or whatever. It's like, but they're living here. It's almost like this is where the calling is. This is where you're needed. And this is where you have the highest concentration of human souls embodied. One of the highest concentrations in the world, in fact. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to make an impact and your job, especially from the Buddhist perspective, is to alleviate suffering for all living things, including yourself, because we all are one living thing, really, yes. right? So what better place to be, in a sense, than where your wave, the ripples hit more people? Exactly. Rather than, oh, yeah, cool, I'll go live in Sedona. Everyone's already fucking on board there. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everyone's like, good. We're know? all good. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like everyone is already meditating on the, yes. on the rocks every yes, morning. Exactly. You know, here in New York City, like, <laughs> is almost where you're needed. It's like, it, it could be a sense like you're a spiritual relief worker or something. Which reminds me on your site, I saw something interesting. I know we're just about out of time here. We can go for another extra five minutes. Okay. All right. You're certified in mental health first aid. And, that was a trip. So what, is that, uh, what does that involve? I, lo I love that term because I feel like I need that a lot. And, and speaking of the city here, I mean, God damn, everywhere you look, man, there's a lot of people that are suffering that I also mean, need that. if you look, when I started... Is that a real thing? It's or? a real oh, thing. Oh, okay, yeah, wow. You do it with the, the New York uh, Health Department. <laughs> oh, no yeah. way. Yeah, it's something that they actually... The New York Health Department has an initiative that they want to have a quarter of a million people certified by in three years, which is huge. Thing, that they want people to actually have the vocabulary to be to look at someone in that connected to your life to be like, hey, how are you? Are you thinking of committing suicide? Have you thought about it? For you to have that vocabulary, to just be able to tune in to someone and, and, and then from that point on, know if you yourself could do the work or if you should be talking to, uh, leading someone else. You look at the research of the ACE study. Have you heard of the ACE study? Adverse Child Experiments, um, Experiences. And um, that shows that 7 out of 10 people have experienced trauma, physical, mental, or sexual abuse growing up. So if you're in a room with 10 people, 7 out of those, people, the, those 10 people have experienced trauma. And then you look at the research going even further. One out of five people in America are experiencing mental health illness. So how the fuck can we all just like sit around and not do the work, you know? So when I started to feel a little bit better, I was like, I need to do something about this. If I got a little bit of space for my suffering, if I was able to walk around that statue of suffering just a little bit and have just a little bit of, of perspective and I was able to give suffering, shame, and guilt, and fear, a little bit of, of a vocabulary that helped you be able to navigate your own 
um, I was like, we all need to talk about this. And then you look at the World Health Organization, the WHO, uh, and they are the institution that sets the health trends for planet Earth, casual. Um, they say that by 2020, so in three years, depression and anxiety will be the number one pandemic. So literally across, and then you look at the statistics that we have, and then you look what they are predicting. There's nothing else that really personally for me that matters than to help alleviate suffering and get people to become mental health first aid. And, and I think a huge part of this work that I always use those vocabularies, these big words of suffering, guilt, shame, fear, it's because we're all experiencing it. We just don't have the vocabulary, the openness to say these things to, every, to each other. We're always, mental health is such a stigma. This is what my work is, uh, to really break that stigma and really get people to, to, to drop in, you know? Uh, so there is a training that you can do with the New York Health Department uh, for kids and for adults. It's an eight-hour intensive. It's very traditional. It's very... Um, my perspective, it's very uh, prehistorical, actually, because you have psychoanalysts and psychiatrists and you name it, the gamut of people who are really serving in the world out there, but they're still eating the footlong subway, drinking the soda, smoking the cigarettes, taking the drug, doing all the things, and, and they're there in this room, and those are the people who are helping alleviate suffering. Um, and then you, you, you clearly know that these are all the things that are setting you back, inflaming your body, therefore inflaming your mind, you know? Um, it's, the research is out there. We actually know this mind-body connection. <laughs> Dude, uh, you know, so, it's fucking that's, crazy That's to funny me. that you mentioned that because so, sometimes I, I'll be walking around and I see someone with like a giant, not like a can of Coke, but like the giant, like the huge cup of yeah, soda. The 7-Eleven you know? cup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see someone drinking that. And I, I'm like always like, oh, holy shit, people still do that. Like I remember being a kid and drinking those big Slurpees and shit exactly. like that. But, I mean, it's been... I don't know how many years since I've yeah. had something like that, but I go, oh my God, I feel so bad for them. They don't realize like, everyone knows it's kind of bad for you, but they don't realize like, it is really, really, really bad for you. I mean, just drinking one of those one time would like wreck me, you know? Completely. Uh, I want to I cover something just in closing here in our last couple minutes, and it might be something that takes more than a couple minutes, but I'm curious when you started having this awakening, you know, so you came out of the suffering, all the stuff that we've talked about, you're doing all this traveling, you're studying the research, you're studying under these masters, and you're just like, obviously a very devoted student. At what point did you decide that you wanted to become a teacher and turn this into an actual career? And when you did, did you have to work through your own self-doubt, shame, Oof. feeling cheesy about like, becoming like, oh, now I'm like a spiritual person and I'm going to charge money for it and like that. How have you dealt with that transition? All of the things, honey. Thanks for bringing this up. This is a really good question. Um, so when I came back from one of the times that, um, that of me coming back from India, because I would do the six-month pilgrimage and I would be coming back to America for the other six months. And I, w I, haven't, I didn't live in a city for nearly four and a half years. I started to live back in a city last October. Um, so during one of these trips, I was one of these stays at, at Omega. Someone said, you have to, you have to teach, you have to, you have to speak in this way. You know, I think, um, um, I think the way you, what you've experienced personally gives you the potential to speak to people who are experiencing it and who, um, want someone that they can relate to speak to them in this way. I was like, okay. So I, I decided to teach one class and 30 people showed up. And then I went away, I went back out to my pilgrimage, and then I was actually 
did my pilgrimage in India and then went to live in Bali for a couple of months. And I ran into um, Avalon, who's one of the teacher, teachers at the Omega Institute. And she's like, Sai, I've been thinking about you. I think you should actually teach your class at a longer, at a, as a longer class. Um, so I applied to teach at a, as a longer class. And I, I thought that it was called The Happiness Equation, but turns out some guy wrote a book called The Happiness Equation, right? Which I was unfamiliar of. Um, and it was a six-week course tying up to the eight-week research of like eight weeks of these practices. You actually change the, the plasticity of the brain in five main areas, therefore, you know, making you physiologically compassionate, kind, and all the qualities that we're trying to cultivate every day. That was when things just opened. It was my first teaching. It was at the Omega Institute for the staff, and there was um, 25 to 35 people that would come every week for three hours, every Saturday for three hours, and we would just dive in. I literally put in everything I knew, everything I had studied for all those nearly four years from all these teachers, from all these different modalities. I, I put everything in that I could back up with scientific research. Um, and then when you're not a scientist, uh, you actually can tie in knots in a, in a different way. You know, you can actually connect things in a more, there's more flow in it. You know, some, when you have the PhD, those kind of credentials, you kind of have to stray away from some kind of vocabulary because I don't have that. I can speak from personal experience, still using that vocabulary. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, which then gives you the potential to, to, uh, you know, to speak to a, a wider audience. So after the Omega Institute, um, I had that as like a, a credibility to come into New York. And and then I was teaching at, at Maha Rose. And then I had some, you know, like Rihanna stylist coming to my thing and then posting about it on, on the Instagram. And then uh, this person, that person, people from the fashion world who were, who were, because at this point I had already been posting a lot about my suffering, a lot about the tools that I had every day as a potential for awakening, every waking moment for a potential for awakening. Um, so using those vocabulary from how I ate to everything I was posting about it. Um, so at that point, I had a little bit of a base in how I was already framing my vocabulary. And then when I came to New York, one thing led to another. And, and then there was a big point that I did a talk at Washington Square Park about forgiveness. And there was almost 200 people there. And um, the senior engineer from Google was there and then he was like, oh, I want to, you know, help you expand this and then this thing and that thing. And then one thing led to another. Um, I, and then led a meditation for, for, for MediClub and then from, you know, from MediClub, it was American Express and the MoMA and the United Nations and, and then things just, you know, happen. Um, and I, I give everything back to the practice. You know, once you have that, 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 um, a discipline with your daily practice, that you're disciplined to relieving your suffering, that you're disciplined to living every day um, with spaciousness, you know, then things just happen. And then you can go from that vocabulary that you, you know, you manifest your reality, your thoughts create reality. It's all that shit is real. And along, you know? <laughs> and along the way, and thank you for that. And along the way, the second part of that was, did I have a future? Well, did you have like imposter syndrome and, you know, those yes. kinds of things that when we're starting something, I mean, I speak from personal experience of just like, wow, I'm going to just all of a sudden kind of be I, an expert at, not yeah, all of a sudden, it's yeah. something I've been into yeah. for a long time, but uh, publicly I'm going to say, yeah, okay, I'm a guy that knows some shit now and I'm going to train yeah. people and have clients and yeah. do talks and all exactly. this stuff. Was there, uh, or, I, or even from the standpoint, 
not only imposter syndrome and self-doubt and all those things, uh-huh. but uh, when it comes to mixing money and charging. Thank you for and- all this. This is so great because so many people, new clients that I have that want to do this line of work, they have so much doubt in what they're doing. Um, and I did have a lot of that so much that at the very beginning that I was teaching, I was only wearing white and I was really trying to be, you know, very much um, from this uh, space of, of, of purity, but forgetting what it was to, to be dynamic and, and, and flamboyant and funny with, you know, that I really am inherently that person and utilizing these tools that I have of outside dressing in a way that people can relate to allure you in to take care of yourself, you know? Um, so that was a big thing. It was, um, I would feel like an imposter when I would get in a fight with my mom still over the dumbest things that she said something that triggered me or I would literally be <laughs> angry at the person because she didn't put enough foam in my, in my latte in the morning or I would, you know, ha- didn't have the, the, the spaciousness to be able to to respond instead of react. You know, I still have this reactive. But then the more you do the work, the more you feel grounded in what you're saying, the more you realize that, you know, it's we're we're it's it's a continuous flow and charging money is a way for you to support yourself. And we need to rewrite that story for everybody that's in the wellness industry. So many people are charging so little money to do such powerful things. Um, So I think I stand strong about saying to people that. And I have new clients that come in that are paying me hourly rate of things that I I had in mind in a couple years, you know, Uh, which that just then you're like, okay, fine, you know, and then you get the opportunity to work with such powerful things and you walk into a 30 minute class and then you get it it just the potential is infinite. You know, we're entering into a space where um, into an industry that is already becoming a a billion dollar and multi-billion dollar industry um, that is very multifaceted. I think the most important thing is to just align yourself with tools and practices that uh, you know that 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 they work, that you see them working, that they help you respond to life, not react to life, that they help you help others, that they help you feel good. My whole motto is like, how can I feel good today so I can make someone else feel better tomorrow? You know, how can we just fill up our cup today? Therefore, we can fill up someone else's cup tomorrow. I know this is very much the base of spirituality, but that's the base of of neuroscientific research too. You know, when you're and I've said this before. I mean, I, I think I posted something on Instagram earlier today. It's just that simple catch of yourself or judging yourself or others, and you rephrasing that at right when it happens. That spaciousness to determine the quality of your thoughts, and then implementing. May I be happy? because I don't need to judge myself or may she be happy because I don't need to judge her dress. At that very moment, you're building new new bridges in your brain and, and that therefore you're you're elevating the bioelectricity of your body and I think you're very much into that and um, so many people speak about bioelectricity and, and vibes and energy and aura from that way but you know, we're all tapped into, the, we're all connected to the same grid, energetic grid and once we, our vagus nerve is, is toned in, in, a, in, a, in a certain way, we therefore are are operating at a at an optimum variability rate. So therefore, we're we're permeating people in a nonverbal way. And then you look at psychology research, Western psychology research. Ninety percent of communication is nonverbal. 
So just by how you're carrying yourself, you're permeating people's lives, you're changing people's lives. So I think um, I invite all the wellness people to come to New York because if you're doing the work, <laughs> you're changing the lives of people without having to say anything, you know, just by being, you're doing the work. Um, so to go back to the imposter syndrome and to go back into um, charging money, I think you know simply how you make other people feel. If other people feel good around you, if you make other people feel like they're worthy, if you make other people laugh, if you can get someone to love themselves just a little bit more, uh, then you can say fuck it to all those self-doubt and all the self-loathing in anyone else out there um, that is judging you because now you're a spiritual teacher or now you have answers, you know? But you always remember that we're just reminders for each other because all these scriptures, all this work that the Buddha did and all these incredible teachers did, they just went inside to find what we already have inherently, you know? All the, the biggest lineages, like let's talk about Patanjali's The Eight Limbs of Yoga. That was like one of the most comprehensive approaches to, to the enlightenment. And, and then the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha, looking at these two very comprehensive approaches to enlightenment. And enlightenment is just a state of mind that you're free of suffering, you know? Um, and I think your, your audience is very aware of that. It's, it's that's 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 cool. I've never heard that definition of enlightenment. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> and that and here's the th and here's the thing that is this ties into the spiritual bypass piece is that enlightenment is not being free of pain. No. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's being free of suffering. Yeah. So it's like it, you said that's that exactly it. how Pema Chodron said that pain actually only lasts ninety seconds. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. And that this is something that I recently kind of tuned into from various teachings again that I saw this sort of um, synergy between all these different things, the same thing being said by all these different people mm -hmm. that possess this level of wisdom. And yeah. it's that sort of the, the, my old biker spiritual teacher used to say, you know, he say, he's from Louisiana. He say, Luke, the only way around it is through it. <laughs> you know, it's just like, that's it, man. It's like to have the, the uh, you know, the fortitude with which to just weather that 90 seconds of feeling those tears come on or feeling that rage mm -hmm. or feeling, you know, mm -hmm. whatever you're feeling. Because mm -hmm. I've... Feel the fucking feels. Dude, I've spent my whole life up until, you know, a few years ago, like literally all of my energy every day was spent running from feelings, even good feelings. And I, I discovered recently, dude, I, I have an upper threshold for good feelings that when I start to feel too good... And I still do this sometimes. I just became aware of it. I'll do something destructive and counterproductive to myself because my, I'm actually not used to just feeling happy all the time. So if I get too happy and successful, I'll do something to like stay up too late or eat some weird food or, you know, have a have relationship. A whole story that, about that at some point. Have we'll a relationship yeah. that's yeah. less than constructive or whatever to like make myself not be as happy as I'm starting to be. It's so mm -hmm. fucking weird. Mm -hmm. So um, I just love everything we've talked about today. I know you got to get going and I have mm -hmm. some stuff I got to dive into here uh, during this lovely week in New York. But man, I just wanted to say that it's been just so great to be able to get to know you. Thank you. Uh, we've Same. passed a little bit here and there, but to sit yeah. down and spend some quality time and like Same. really dive in is just thank awesome. You. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for, for offering, you know, this sort of New York quasi-Buddhist psychological standpoint. I haven't really... 
approached things uh, on the show from this perspective. So it's really exciting. It's it's cool. It's like at the end of the day, like all the paths lead to up the same mountain. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's really neat. I just never get tired on this show of interviewing people that have their own unique perspective on it because it just colors it in a different way. And maybe some of those many thousands of people that are going to listen to this will relate to you that maybe didn't relate mm-hmm. to the neuroscientist that I had on that was like too heady or the California woo-woo kundalini person that was too spacey or whatever, you know, and they're going to like, <laughs> yeah. they're going to go, saw, man, that, that's my man. That's the guy that I could really, you know, dig into. So thank you so much. Yeah, of um, course. Thank you. Tell us before we go, um, where people can find your work. My website, www.sadisimon.com. And, um, my Instagram, follow the gram. I, I really am using the Instagram stores to find ways to, you know, educate in a way that's very easy and accessible. Um, so I, I have that discipline of doing it every day. Um, so check it out. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. And then my last question is, um, and you are a good Instagram follow too. When One thing we didn't have, get to touch on, but we, yeah. when you follow Saw on Instagram, like, dude, you have the best style. Like, you dress so dope. And I think Luke that's talking. And I think that's I think that's I think that's cool that you're you're into spirituality and it doesn't mean that like you said you have to walk around in white robes or that you have no. to denounce self-expression in the form of physicality yeah. and that it, it can be done from a place other than egomania and trying to wear, you know, design yeah. your labels to prove you're better than everyone and all that shit that I'm sure well I won't assume but that I know I have done and many people in fashion of getting caught up in all that but you have like mm-hmm. a very cool aesthetic and something I really like about where this is going now is there's a lot of sort of younger very creative artistic t- talented people that are bringing style and great branding and stuff into the space of health and wellness which you're very much doing so follow him on Instagram um, and then my final question is what is it I ask it this every time oh yeah I mean, you've mentioned tons of them, but who have been three profound teachers or teachings in your life that we might go to uh, to learn from as well? Could be a philosophy, a book, a film, a person, anything. Okay, I think the Dhammapada is a big one. It's a, a Buddhist text, the sutras. Um, it really hones into the Buddhist words, unfiltered by the disciples later. Um, a really powerful book that's really talks a lot about what I've spoken about now. It's called altruism. It's a big one though. So put on your audiobook and, you know, go on a long drive if you're in LA or hop on a walk, you know, listen to while you're in, in New York. Uh it's by Matthew Ricard and it's he's a former molecular biologist gone uh, Tibetan Buddhist monk. Um and it's very much about these inherent qualities that we have that Freud said we weren't, but the reality is that we are. Uh, don't let anyone tell you that you're not good because we are inherently good. Um, and then a teacher that speaks about suffering the way that I could just listen to all day is Sharon Salzberg, which I hope you get her on because she is an, an incredible, impeccable person. And of course, Pema Trajone, I mean, and his home is Dalai Lama, but that's, uh, it's a little bit harder to, to get to him. But if Pema, she, she, she does talks around and Sharon is very accessible, especially if you're in New York, she has something going on every week. And she just has a very clear... Actually, I'm going to see her at Mindful next uh, next Thursday night. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. She's in, 
She's a high vision. Yeah, and she has a podcast too. She does. Yeah. Her podcast Meta I highly Hour, recommend. I think it's called. Yeah. 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 Cool, um, man. Well, thanks for those recommendations. Yeah, of course. A couple that I didn't know and one that I did. So awesome. Cool. All right, man. Well, we'll let you go live your life. Thank you for coming. Thank and you. uh really appreciate your time and I can't wait to do this very soon again. Thank you very much, Luke. I really appreciate it. I'm honored. I don't know about you, but my heart's really warm. Is your heart like melted after that great conversation with Saz at pouring out of your chest? What a sweetheart, right? I love sitting down with people that I don't know, really. You know, we had met a couple times, but didn't really know. And we just drop into the zone, right into the vortex and have a real heart to heart conversation. It was amazing. So I'm really stoked to deliver that one to you. And uh, if you're stoked about it, you know what to do. Click the share button on your device, whatever you're listening to this on, and send it to a friend, you know, someone that struggles with mental health issues, with shame, self-doubt, someone that's interested in meditation, spirituality, all of the stuff that we talked about in the show. The best way to heal the world is to share the things that you find that work. And that's what this show is all about. So I appreciate your support. I really, really appreciate you listening. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you to devote your ears to the Lifestylist podcast. If you want some more of this action, as I said earlier, I am dropping two episodes a week in the spirit of the holidays. So this Friday, we've got number 110 with Arnie Grinstead, and we talk all about the healing powers of lasers. This is madness, you guys. You're not going to believe the stuff that these things do. You know I'm really into the biohacking tech. So Arnie and I met at the Bulletproof Conference and uh, we sit down in my living room and just like go full geek mode. But if you're not a sciencey person, don't don't be uh, don't skip this one because there's a lot of really good information. And of course, as always, I really try to present it in a way that is relatable and understandable by normal people like me and you. And if you're a super nerd, well then you're gonna dig it too. So that's this Friday. And what else? I think that's it, man. Happy holidays to everyone. I'm really looking forward to this Christmas. I'm just grinding it out right now and uh, getting all these podcasts done. I I kind of dug myself into a a hole here because I promised to deliver two a week. And then now I'm like, wait, this is double the work. What am I doing? I could have stretched these out over the next few months, but whatever. I want to hit a million downloads. I want you guys to get as much content as you can before the beginning of the year because I have some great things in store for you. So thank you once again. Again, and you, I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be back in your ears this Friday, and then again next Tuesday, and then, and then, and then next Friday, and on and on and on, until the end of the year. And the last show of December will be on Christmas Day, featuring Guru Singh. So, dude, you better subscribe. You don't want to miss any of the action. All right, peace out, laters. Don't forget to let those fingers do the typing to get yourself over to Organifi.com with an I, where you can enter the code LIFESTYLIST and save 20% off on all of their fantastic products, not the least of which being the new Organifi Gold, which is my favorite warm golden latte evening drink. I mix it up with a little butter or ghee, and it is absolutely fantastic. You got to try it out. It's very relaxing calming, detoxing, superfoods, herbs. It is amazing. Okay, check it out at Organifi.com. Use the code LIFESTYLIST and save 20%.